This particular pandemic is forcing societies, governments, to focus on the interests of the most vulnerable. I want you to imagine with me that we could, for a moment in time, just press pause on society. Imagine I'm a genie and I grant you a wish and your wish is, I want to press pause on society, step out of it and take a moment to completely redesign what it might look like, apply a whole new set of rules and in so doing, hopefully fix some of what's not working particularly well at the moment. And I guess in a way, that's what's happened. This virus and its impact on the world around us has allowed us to step outside of ordinary life for just a second and to imagine how we might do things differently when we get reinserted into the world. My guest on the show today is Dr. Vasti Rurt. She is an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy in the University of Stellenbosch and the head of the Unit for Social and Political Ethics in the Center for Applied Ethics at the school. We talk about a theory, a philosophical theory, uh, that was originally proposed by a very smart and very famous philosopher called John Rawls in the 1970s. He called it the theory of social justice, and I find it an incredibly insightful and challenging way to look at the world, a way of maybe recalibrating our priorities and our thoughts about what's important and how we could build us a better society if ever we were afforded the opportunity. This show does come with a philosophical trigger warning. It is a bit of a mind bender and will require, I guess, a bit of focus and a bit of deliberation. So enjoy it, uh, immerse yourself in it and share it if you find it as useful as I did recording it. Dr. Vasti Rurt, thank you so much for making time during this period of lockdown when I know that you are very busy adapting to this new world of work to chat to me about a really interesting topic that we we both care about, the idea of justice. Hi, Mike. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for the opportunity for this chat. Yeah, I am excited to figure to, to discover what we are going to discover jointly in this conversation. Indeed. Can you tell me a little bit about how the university is responding to lockdown and how you've had to uh, readjust some of the ways that you teach and work with students uh, in this period? I have to say it has been a steep learning curve for all of us. You know, we are not a distance learning yes, institution. Sure. So while they, you know, for, for all our mm. courses, they, there is a online platform that we use and so on but that's kind of used to upload slides and to send emails to students and, and that's more or less it so we, yes, we very yes, quickly had learning management system yeah. yeah precisely so we very quickly had to figure out how do you translate a sort of a face-to-face -face classroom interaction into some online format and the university has been very helpful in in doing that so we have regular webinars and I'm so sure. on We've done what we what we could up to now. Um, one of the biggest challenges is just to, for students to have access, you know, so not everybody has Wi-Fi, not everybody has access to a laptop. So there are economic material constraints for some students and the mm, university is working yeah. on figuring out how to deal with that. But, but we're still feeling, feeling our way through this. 
in incredible how when we have our backs up against it, how we invent solutions that, that might have taken months or years for us to figure out before. So in a way, I'm sure there are positive outcomes from that, not, not only in terms of the, the institutional response, but also our personal, uh, as you said, our personal learning curves and, and adaptation. You, you're in the, the faculty of philosophy and, and we interacted uh, specifically around a workshop that was hosted to explore the overlaps between the traditional world or, or archetype around business leadership and some of the deep thinking and critical thought processes that are so much a part of the philosophical uh, endeavor. What is your particular area of interest and research and teaching with it within the faculty? Broadly speaking, my, my interest and focus is on political philosophy. So one way of, of saying what political philosophy is about is to say it's about two questions, who gets what and says who. And while political philosophy is interested in these questions, you know, at a, at a higher level of abstraction or at a, you know, at the level of society and across societies, I would think that business leaders have to answer these same questions, right? Who gets what and yes. says who. So I think that there is a point of, of overlap there and and we had a kind of an intuition that business leaders would benefit from the kind of big picture thinking uh, that philosophy offers and that was the that was the beginning of the, the well, that was the idea behind the workshop yes okay so so the who gets what and 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 who says says so are are two maybe even two of the most interesting questions we're asking right now as as we have to essentially redesign our our economy or our society in response to this this common enemy uh in, in the form of this pandemic we've never really had an opportunity to do this before and so i guess it introduces at a philosophical level but also on a very practical level a new set of questions about how we design services and how we look after people who most need help and how businesses respond. But in a time when the market has essentially taken a, a back seat, what are some of the things that you are, are seeing that are really interesting uh, coming out of that? Well, one mm. of the interesting things and fruitful insights that have come out of the crisis is that this particular pandemic is forcing societies, governments to focus on the interests of the most vulnerable. So it's one yes. thing to have an economy that is that is structured in such a way that those who are already doing well keep on doing well. Sure. Suddenly, we are forced to say, well, who's m most vulnerable here? And most vulnerable he here are, well, those people most likely to get sick and die of this virus. The thing yes. is, and, and this is what is really interesting, is we don't know who these people are. We can say, of course, sure. that in a, in a general sense, you know, if you are poorer, if you live in a more densely populated uh, environment and so on, your chances are higher of, of not accessing healthcare. But mm -hmm. we don't know who the, who the most vulnerable people are, who are, who are going to get sick here. So, so our thinking about vulnerability, our thinking about how our resources have to be distributed. Um, a lot of things are suddenly, suddenly up in the air. A lot of the inherited ways of doing and distributing 
do not hold under these circumstances. And is that because we, we regardless of, of sort of what position we hold in society, whether you are the most powerful person in the room or, as we've mentioned before, the potentially the most vulnerable. And again, those definitions are quite different at the moment because we're talking about, we're not necessarily talking about wealth. We're not necessarily talking about influence. We're talking about our exposure to this this disease, right? Which seems yeah. to be have absolutely no bias or consideration <laughs> for how much money I, I have in my bank account or where yeah. I live or any of these these sort of traditional measures of, of influence. There's a sense that I'm I'm brutally aware of this because if I don't in some way, shape or form contribute and let, let's use a very practical example of, of self-isolation, right? So if yeah. I don't take responsibility for isolating myself, I am I am I am just as much at risk as that person who is is most disenfranchised and most vulnerable. And if they're exposed and I don't do my yep. part to protect them, the virus wins, right? So there's this sort of third force. So I'm, co I'm completely thinking differently about the system that I operate in. And I yes. don't think we do that much outside of this moment. You're right. Um, I think what this has forced us to recognize is that whether we want to or not, we share in each other's fate. And yeah. as you say, my actions impact, uh, my actions at the present impact on other people's health and their Im actions impact on my health. And this is a very, very stark reminder. And, you know, while, while things are going well, while we are insulated from the harms that others are suffering, it's easy to kind of, you know, carry on and accept the status quo as this is the best that we can do. Suddenly we are confronted mm. with, you know, how we haven't done this well. And precisely the way in which, as I said now, our fates are, are mutually intertwined. And if that is one yes. starting point, rather than a starting point of saying, well, what can I get to benefit myself? The, the, the way in which we organize our, our institutions may be radically different. Yes, yeah, so I mean, the, the nature of the threat is important, right? And what's yeah. unique about, about this virus is number one, as we said, it's, it's unbiased and apolitical. It affects everybody the same way, but also it's just the rate of impact on our, our world. Whereas there are, other, there are other things going on in the world around us that have an adverse impact on the country we live in, the communities that we're in, our businesses, our families. You know, we, we talk yeah. about these these big dynamics like uh, inequality, um, poverty. We talk about disease and 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 uh, in, in some areas, natural disasters, climate change. These are all sort of these big. You know, as as one of my previous guests spoke about, you know, kind of high impact events and. But they all seem to have, you know, with the exception of, of the odd natural disaster that we don't really know when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen, they all seem to kind of be spread over very long periods of time. And so we don't really have a sense of, we, they're, not, they're not apparent to us. On a day. We don't feel them. Whereas this thing we can feel, it's like the whole world changed in a matter of days. And, yeah. and I don't know if that's ever happened in our lifetimes before. No, I, I wouldn't think in the lifetime of this generation, it, it hasn't. And I think we, we're generally pretty bad at assessing risk 
that plays out the, the risk of events that play out over long periods of time and the yeah. i don't know I, I hesitate to say the value of this crisis you know i mean it's hard to say that this is a valuable thing but the, the point is that a crisis concentrates the mind in yeah. a way that long periods of um disaster that we don't recognize it doesn't concentrate our mind on on the nature of the disaster and on the question of what should be done whereas now it is utterly unavoidable at some point you know the lockdown has to be lifted at some point something has to happen what has to happen yeah. how do our institutions have to function how do we have to distribute the resources in, in our society these questions cannot be uh, cannot be evaded in this yeah. under these circumstances as they can be evaded when it comes to sort of long term problems are we essentially talking about what is fair you, you know when it when it comes to to the world of political philosophy a lot of a lot of the thinking around governance and the decision of of distribution of of resources is what is the most fair way to do what is the what is the fairest way to navigate our way through this pandemic so that all citizens of our country have the best chance of coming out of it okay or at least you know surviving for lack of a better phrase is is that is that the essence of of the question well i would say yes um because i'm biased towards the principle of fairness which we i'm sure we'll talk yeah. about a bit more now so the question of of you know the political philosophy the, the who gets what and says who question so one, one can answer that in different ways so you can yeah. propose different principles of distribution so you can say everybody yeah. should uh, get uh, distribution should be based on merit it should be based on need it should be based on desert so these are all kinds yeah. of arguments that people offer mm. my preference for various reasons is for fairness indeed yes. and then i guess we have to unpack a bit you know what we what we need by fair mean by fairness if we don't mean by fairness simply merit or desert or need yeah so if we think about the lockdown uh, as an example which has initiated a fair amount of debate from different political sectors around this what is probably a false a false dichotomy between mm -hmm. what's good for the economy and what's good for human life right there, these things yeah. are are inextricably intertwined so it's a use, useless argument saying one is good for uh, the economy and one is is good for protecting people because we understand obviously that protecting lives is in the long run probably going to be good for the economy and on the flip side we know that yeah. protecting the economy also translates to people's well-being happiness and fulfillment so, yeah, i completely appreciate the nuance there yes. what do you what do you sense has been the thinking around fairness in terms of the 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 policy around lockdown is it simply if we just make everybody do the same thing that's the fairest way to to solve this problem right now yeah i mean of course it's difficult to to impute motives to decision makers you know without actually knowing what has been going into the decision making sure. but i i would say that from the outside it it's understandable that the decision was made in the way it was and it seems to me that what the consideration that was that fed into the decision was indeed this point that i made earlier about protecting 
the vulnerable. Now, of course, mm. there are always vulnerable people, and one can one can make decisions around protecting the vulnerable in all kinds of ways. But given here that we do not know who the people will be who are going to be affected by this mm. uh, yeah. virus, and yeah. and we also do not know the rate at which um, they are going to be affected. The the fair thing here would be to say that we make the same rules for everyone rather than exempting some, at least at this point, until we've bought ourselves ourselves enough time to know a little bit more about the virus itself, to be able to track where infections are flaring up and so on, and until we have sufficient beds and the medical system is such that it can actually deal with the expected uh, rate of infection. Upturn, yeah. So when you presented in the workshop that I had had the privilege of attending last year, you 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 presented an idea that seems a lot at the idea. I mean, at the time was quite conceptual, and and one of the criticisms, I guess, of the the, the theory that you and I are going to be talking about is that it is very conceptual and very utopian in its, in its sort of ideology. But you presented an idea for thinking about how we might design a society if we were able to press the pause button for a second, remove ourselves from the world and go, hey, if we, if we could rewrite the rules, if we could do this again from scratch, <laughs> knowing yeah. what we know now and knowing what we know about humanity and our behaviors and, and our, 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 you know, the, 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 the good and bad parts of our nature, how would we redesign the world? And, and, and to some degree, certainly not, you know, in a, in a completely utopian way, but in, to some degree, we're experiencing that a little bit right now, because in essence, we have pressed pause on the world and we are evaluating a lot of a lot of the way things are through a different lens. Can you tell people who have not heard about Rawls's theory of justice, which is, is the theory that you presented and spoke about it at the workshop? Can you tell people who have never heard of it before what the what the essence of his idea was? Yeah, I mean, perhaps I should just say, you know, so John Rawls is, at least in political philosophy, considered sort of one of the really great philosophers of the 20th century. One of the yeah. nerdy, nerdy things that philosophers like to do is to have these kind of online polls about who do you think will still be read in 100 years time and in 200 years time <laughs> yeah. and 500 years time. And uh, over and over again, Rawls wins this poll. So he is really one of the sort of great figures. So why is he so great? And I, I suppose significantly in the history of philosophy, very recent, right? This we, we this is essentially here's a man who who did his best work in the 1970s. That's right. So he's a he's a recent yeah. philosopher. Obviously, I mean the ideas he has he, he proposes don't fall from the sky. So there is a sort of a tr tradition behind it. But yes, he he's a 20th century. Uh, philosopher and the, the reason why he made such an impact in philosophy and very much beyond philosophy as well is that he the, the dominant way of thinking about the question of who should get what how we should distribute income and wealth rights privileges duties benefits and burdens in a society the, the dominant view since the 19, 19th century until rules in 1971 uh, was utilitarianism so the idea well the, the idea was 
we should distribute things such that it maximizes the happiness of the greatest number of people in society. So, so it serves mm -hmm. the interests of the greatest number. The greater good. The, yes. yeah. What Rawls saw uh, is that that way of distributing things is compatible with some people having to sacrifice their benefit, their utility, their happiness so that the majority can benefit. And the question is, what would make that morally justifiable? And his answer is nothing. It cannot be justified that you expect some people to count as uh, worth less so that others can maximally benefit. The question then is, what is the alternative? And what the alternative yeah. that Rawls then comes up with is this idea of justice as fairness rather than mm -hmm. as that rather than justice as maximizing utility. Utility, yeah. So where did he start in in this theory? How did he how did he start to unpack that idea of of fairness as a theory essentially for for a just world? Well first of all with with trying to figure out well what kind of a thing is a society? Right? So if you think of a society as, as a sort of hotel, people check in, they use room service, they leave again, you will have yeah. one view about what the members of that society owe one another. Mm -hmm. He does not think of society like that. He thinks it's generally a mistake to think of it. It's not a hotel. First of all, we don't simply decide freely what society we will belong to. We, we are born into a society without any choice. So that's, yes. that's the starting point, right? All of us yes. are born into a society, to, into a family, into a set of circumstances that we did not choose. If oh, we... Or, or, or earn, right? So, so it's not yeah, a, it's yeah. not a free decision for which we can either be praised or blamed. That you are born into yes. a particular society, into a particular family, at a, in a particular place in the world. Yes. So, from that starting point, the question then, then would be: Well, what kind of society would be fair, irrespective of? where the, the, the circumstances into which one was born. So that's the that's the starting question. And it's an important regardless of what hand you were dealt, right? Exactly. What what the role of the dice in terms of, of where you landed up in the world and what types of parents and even what genetics or any of those other determining factors around success. Exactly. Yeah. And you know the, there's a there's it's a very well known characteristic of human psychology that we tend to, when we are successful, we tend to uh, ascribe our success to our own brilliance, right? To our own talents. Yeah. When we are not successful, we, we ascribe that to our social circumstances. Now, the, yeah. the, the, the implication of that or the consequence of this kind of thinking is that when you simply ask people, how should society be organized? Um, how should benefits and burdens be distributed? Those who have already done well tend to want to protect what they have for completely mm. understanding. So it's not to say that that's, you know, a reprehensible thing to want to do, but it's... No, it's no, un that's, it's completely understandable. Yeah. It's completely understandable. Whereas those with very little who have not benefit, benefited tend to yes. argue for redistribution. Yes, yes. Given this, this way in which we are pitted against one another, 
how on earth are we ever going to agree on what is really fair? So, so this is yes. the, the problem that Rawls tries to address. So that's his starting point. And then he has a proposal for how one could try and address that, which we okay. can chat about a bit. Yeah, I, I suppose the problem there is it's so difficult to imagine being in the world in any other way than the way you are, right? So, so I can only – it's so difficult for me to imagine life or the experience of life or the experience of a community or society through any other lens than, than my own. And, and that, I guess, is, is the, the problem of justice, right? Because what's fair to me is, is going to be completely unfair to somebody else or in terms of my definition of what's fair. So how does he, how does he tackle that problem of, of changing perspective? Yeah, I mean, you're completely right. I mean, first of all, that this is, I think, part of the, I don't want to say, sort of price we pay for being social creatures. You know, we take our reference from what's around us. So the circumstances in which you find yourself influence the way in which you reason about how life ought to be and how you think about how morality ought to work and how, including how you think things ought to be distributed in your society. So yes, yes. the challenge is how do you get people to climb out of that, uh, what shall we call it, sort of cognitive prison, you know, where yeah. you simply take your guide of safety <laughs> cone of safety locked in a lockdown or whatever um, yeah. how do you how do you get out of that so first of all rawls does think that we despite the fact that we tend to take our guidance and our, you know take our familiar environment as our, our reference point we do have the capacity to climb out of this in a prison. And we expect people to yeah. do this all the time, right? We expect this of judges, for instance. We would we would yeah. not want a judge to sit on the bench and say, well, I'm going to condemn you simply because of the prejudices I happen to have or because of the particular person I happen to be. We don't want teachers yeah. to be like this. We don't want uh, police officers to be like this. So we do have expectations of people to transcend their, their own limited experience and sphere of judgment. The question is, how do we get people to do this on a large scale? And for this, yes. Rawls proposes a thought experiment. So if okay. we always, philosophers always want to do thought experiments because they make them feel cool. You know, we also do experiments. <laughs> we just don't do it in a lab. We do it in our minds. So the thought experiment that Rawls proposes is he calls it the veil of ignorance. Okay. But the idea is to say, imagine you have to, as you said earlier, you have to design a society from the ground up, a society in which you are going to live. Yes. But you have to design it not knowing who you are going to be uh, in that society. So this is the idea of, the, okay. the, of, of having to make this decision under what he then calls the veil of ignorance, which yes, is yes. this imaginative veil that hides you from yourself. So that hides yes. all these morally irrelevant factors about yourself, right? So the circumstances in which you were born, your gender, your race, your abilities, your religious beliefs, your moral commitments, all of those. And they yes. ask, 
So what would a society or what should a society look like that when this veil, this imaginary veil lifts, um, I would be willing to accept any position in that society? I'd be willing to roll the dice. Yeah. I would be willing to roll the dice, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I would uh, be willing to find myself in any position from the best off to the worst off. So I don't know these things about myself, but I also, I mean, I don't know anything about this, this society either, right? So I can't, I can't gamble because I know I have a 10% chance of falling into the worst off position and I have a 30% yes. chance of being middle class. I don't know that. Yes. So I can't yes. play the odds and hope yes. for the best. Like this is such a powerful idea. So to, in my mind, I've almost got this, I'll walk out on my driveway one day, you know, presuming I'll ever be able to leave my house again, but I walk out on my driveway and there's this flash of bright light and I open up my eyes and I'm now on Mars. And there's these three aliens that go, we are genies and you have been selected randomly from all of the earthlings to well done, redesign earth. You get to redesign earth. And here I am on Mars. I've suddenly been imbued with this incredible uh, godlike power to fix the world. The problem is that they tell me you don't know anything about yourself in terms of your standing in the world, what gifts or talents or abilities or beliefs you have. And you also don't know anything about how the rest of the world is structured. You need to design a way for the world to work without those two pieces of knowledge, knowing that you could land up going back to earth in any one of those countries or positions or demo is, is it, is that the same sort of idea? It is the same sort of idea. So, so the, okay. the, the Mars example is one that's, that's often used to, to try and, and yes. bring this idea home. And but what it's trying to do, obviously, we can't actually, we're not actually going to go to Mars and encounter aliens. There's yes, no course, actual course, veil yeah. of ignorance and so on. But it is trying help to help us get out of our comfort bubble again. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's trying to model the kind of decision making that is required for, um, for, uh, yeah, for, a matter of justice rather than the kind of decision-making that we are more comfortable with, which is sort of reasoning in defense of our own immediate interests. And Yes. So it's kind of the balance between what I deem to be really fair, if I don't know where I'll end up, versus what I would deem to be fair, knowing who I am and what I have. Exactly. Kind of, kind of the tension between those two things. Exactly. I mean, I should add that, that Rawls adjusted his thought experiment a bit later on. So initially, the idea was that it would be representative members of a given society who have to make this decision on their own behalf, right? Or it's you yourself now on Mars having to come up to redesign Earth or whatever else. Later on, he adjusted it so that you yourself are representing some other member of the society, but you don't know who that person is. So you're making a decision okay. on okay. their behalf. You are negotiating okay. on their behalf. And then okay. Okay. once the veil lifts or once you are back on earth, whatever else, then you encounter the person on whose behalf you had made the decision. And then you have to justify the decision to them. So oh, wow. Why? That sounds like a really great Hollywood script, doesn't it? <laughs> it is, you know. I, I do think that there's scope for maybe this. Somebody will write the script during lockdown. Maybe, maybe. 
If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. So he asks us essentially to climb out of our own reality and with as critical and objective a mind as possible, make an attempt at designing the kind of world that we'd want to live in if we had no idea what our social standing or wealth or whatever it might be would be. And then that's a powerful experiment. And I'm hoping that people that are listening you potentially maybe even pause the podcast and and sit with that a little bit and you're kind of what would i want what what how would i what would i make the new set of rules that govern society if if i had the power and the ability to do so bearing in mind mildly terrifying it that i don't know where i'm going to land up but then he also he goes on to propose he, he goes through the exercise of doing this, right? And he applies yes. the veil of ignorance himself. And then he goes, I, I think I have an idea around how we could do this. Yes. And, and that's the next part of his theory, right? Is he goes, I think there are two major guidelines, let's call them rather than rules, but two things we, we should probably think about or that we would instinctively arrive at if we yes. were if we were to apply this thinking is 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 that fair to say that's fair to say i mean he calls them principles and i mean a principle yeah, I, is a yeah. is so it's not a rule a principle is where we start from right that is the 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 starting okay. yeah. point from yes. where further thinking happens to put it that way so yes yes, um, yes. and okay. he thinks if you and, and you know i've 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 done this before there are all kinds of games that you can play in a classroom setup and so on so i've done this with students before Obviously, one has to adapt it a little bit, but to see whether whether the, these are the principles that they that they come up with arrive when at, they, yes. when they uh, under the veil. I have to say, it's um, sometimes with mixed success, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, uh, quite revealing, I'm sure. Yes, but okay. I mean, you know, undergraduate students are maybe not a representative sample of humanity either. Yes, so he thinks that if you run the thought experiment, there would sort of be, be various different iterations, various proposed principles, but many of these would fall by the wayside, and what would remain would be two. So the first one is not a controversial one at all. That is simply, well, how yes. free should people be? And the answer is maximally free. So it's basically yes. just a principle of liberty. So everybody should be as free as possible in such a way that, that their freedom should be compatible with the freedom for everyone. One would choose that under the veil of ignorance because if the you do not know the kind of person you're going to be when the veil lifts or the kind of person yes. on whose behalf you are deciding is will be. So you don't want a society that says, the best, the highest ideal for everyone is to become opera singers or pianists or golfers or, you know, whatever, because you simply don't know what would matter to you. So you should be maximally yes. free to live the kind of life that matters to you, whatever that turns out to be. 
Yes. So, so everybody, regardless of what can they get dealt, regardless of what talents or natural abilities or wealth or uh, influence or network or whatever it is that they are endowed with when they are introduced into this new society, they should have the freedom to realize their own fulfillment and happiness as far as it doesn't impinge on others' freedom. Exactly. To do the same. Precisely. That's the idea. Okay. All right. And that seems completely reasonable, right? That, that's, that seems to be, for all intents and purposes, a, a foundational human and primal desires that we, we and we, we're learning that right now, aren't we? Is that we, <laughs> we need that freedom. Yes. We, need, we need to be able to explore our own fulfillment and our own self-actualization. That is a foundational part of what makes us human and, and, a, and a construct of any civilized society. So, so we know yeah. that, that yeah, I think there's very few people that would argue that we shouldn't be free, but I think you know it's important to recognize that that freedom acknowledges that everybody else deserves to be free, and as such, it needs to be considerate rather of of those you know that that foundational truth. Yeah. So so, I mean, when I can throw the question around, you know, asking from the other angle, other side, and say. What could ever be the justification for saying that one person deserves greater freedom than another? Yes. Leaving, le- leaving out of account now people who are in prison for having uh, transgressed and so on, but that's already because they had transgressed against the freedoms of others. But I mean, on what basis could you ever say that people are inherently unequal so that some deserve yes. more rights than others? So that's a yeah. long, there's a long history behind that. And I mean, roles is yes, yes part of the of the tradition that says there is no uh, justification for discriminating uh, between people uh, on the basis of some sort of inherent quality that they have people are there's nothing that inherently makes some people deserving of more freedoms a greater number of rights than anyone else so that's the that's the basic intuition that this that, that he tries to elicit from us through this yeah. veil of ignorance thought experiment. So that's that's principle number one. That's the that's the the first thing, right? Right. Then he drifts into the, the tougher <laughs> question, I would argue, which is yeah. around where we where you and I started our conversation around who who gets what and and who says so. How do we distribute resources? How do we how do people come by um, wealth or, or whatever it might be? And here's where some of the apparent or agreed upon genius of the model is, but it is a bit of a mind bender, isn't it? It is a bit of a, a mind bender, um, but it, it's important to understand that the second principle is follows from the first. So it's not as if these yes, are okay. two completely unrelated things. So on the one hand, if you say, yes. okay, we care about freedom, right? So people, not for its own sake, but uh, for the sake of people enabling people to pursue whatever life and whatever um, ends matter to them. The question then is, well, what are the means necessary to pursue one's end? So it's one thing to say to people, you're free to live whatever 
life you want. It's another thing to say, well, how are you going to pay for it? Right. So it comes at a cost, whatever matters to us, unless I want to spend my life sitting on the beach playing guitar, pretty much everything I, any goal I want to pursue, it requires buy-in from from the rest of society, right? It requires resources. The freedom is not for free. Yeah, exactly. So the second question then is, or the second principle then has to do with the distribution of income and wealth. And in South Africa, of course, that would include the question of land, which is, you know. um, Mm. So it's this is where, where people get really worked up about rules. So if you take the starting assumption seriously, namely that there is nothing inherent in people that entitles them to a greater share of rights or income or wealth. So there's nothing that makes people deserving of of more of something or that makes them deserving a a lesser share of the resources inherent in themselves. How then should we distribute income and wealth? Yes. Yes. And there is a long reasoning process behind this, but the the principle that Rawls ultimately proposes is what he calls the difference principle. And it states that income and wealth should be distributed equally unless unequal distribution uh, would make everybody better off but it would especially make the worst off group in society as well off as they could possibly be. In other words, if you have more equal distribution, but that means a smaller share for everyone, or you have equal distribution, small shares, and a more or a more unequal distribution where the share of income and wealth on the part of the worst off group is bigger then that is the fairer distribution. Okay. <laughs> so now the capitalist would say, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. I agree that everybody in a, in a free and open society and especially in a free market should be entitled to the same starting point, the same rights, the same freedoms, the same, you know, I get yeah. that, comfortable. However, on your second point, <laughs> that sounds a little bit like communism, right? Sounds a little bit like socialism. Um, and I think that if somebody has the ability, the inherent ability to do better with, with what they've been given, they should be able to do that and have the freedom to do that regardless of, of the outcome, right? So Rawls says, that's fine. I get that and I appreciate that. But the measure for them doing better, the measure for them getting paid more should be the impact on the worst person or or the worst off person in that community or society. Am am I understanding that correctly? Yes, I think you you put it really well. So to to take one step back to the point I made earlier about our our tendency to ascribe our own success to our own innate abilities and our own hard work and so on and somebody else's failure to, to, uh, well, and and when we fail, we think that that's the result of external circumstances rather than, yeah, it's the world, it's not us. So of course people have different inherent abilities. 
Yes. What is also true is that one's social circumstances determine what kind of abilities are the kinds of abilities that you can capitalize on, the kinds of abilities that people are willing to pay for. So, yes. and that's a matter of luck. That is not something, you did not make the society in which you live, number one. And yes. secondly, yes. you didn't choose those innate abilities either. You may have chosen to, to develop them, but once again, you didn't yes. develop them on your own, right? You de developed them uh, within an entire social framework that was set up in such a way that it allowed you to develop those abilities. So yes. Yes. if you think about it, there is a great chain of luck good luck that lies behind somebody who who is financially successful and a great chain of bad luck uh, that lies behind someone who is part of the the worst of group in society yes so rawls is not anti-capitalist but he yes. is anti the view that whatever i earned based on my abilities i have a moral right to keep the idea behind Rawls's view is that the income and wealth that you amass based on your own, own ability, it's not a reward for you being who you are, given that you haven't actually yes. chosen who you are. You haven't chosen those abilities. Yes. You haven't chosen the circumstances of your birth. It is not a reward for you who you are. It is a rent that society pays you for your ability. So... Mm -hmm. We rent the abilities of the entrepreneurs and of the business leaders and of the neurosurgeons from them for the benefit of all of us. Mm. The moment that you start earning more than it would cost to get you to exercise that ability you have for the benefit of, of the rest of us, there's no more yes. justification for that additional. The yes. only justification for that for whatever you earn is that it makes everybody better off so essentially he's saying you should be able to do as well as you want to do and can do given wherever it is that you landed up in this new utopian society or wherever you are let's make it a little bit more real Yep. But ideally, in such a way that nobody in that society loses because of it. Yes, that's so that nobody loses because of it. But the, the point is stronger than that. It is so that to the ex that you can benefit to the extent that everyone else maximally benefits. So if mm. you could make yeah. others worse, uh, if you can make others better off, then there's no yeah. moral reason not to do it. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's fair. So if we, if we come back to reality, you know, with this, yeah. this thinking in mind, we know that obviously the world doesn't work that way for a variety of different reasons, but probably most viscerally people's tendency towards self-interest, especially when they have come upon or discovered or created significant wealth. We, we trust government to be the intermediary. Well, we don't all trust government, but I guess we've designed society so that governments can step in in between stakeholders and 
course correct a little bit for that, right? Is that what government is supposed to do? Is that if failing uh, an application of a Rawlsian version of society where you can do as well as you want or are able, provided that others benefit from you doing well, we ask government to do that for us. Is that is that is government supposed to be the intermediary that fulfills that role? Yes, um, for for two reasons. One is what you, as you've pointed out already, in self interest is a powerful thing. So to expect yes. people to willingly do the right thing. Is, is simply naive. So some people who are naive in that way are libertarians. So this idea that you know, if government just butts out and you leave people to get on with things, then there would be a sort of a natural tendency towards charity and so on. So let people amass wealth and then they, they can distribute it in the form of charity and we would, you know, things yes. would work much better that way. I think that's simply... Well, well the, case, the case for that thinking, and I have many dear friends who have helped me sharpen my thinking because because obviously I don't typically op- occupy a libertarian mindset, but they've really helped me sharpen my thinking around where I do stand on this topic mm-hmm. is the one defense of that position is that in a system, in a society, if, if let's say government steps up and allows everybody to pursue their own self-interest to, to its end, is that you would realize at some point in time that that if you are going to extract only extract wealth and self-fulfillment out of that society, that it's going to collapse anyways. So there is a there mm-hmm. is a sense of equilibrium built into people's self-interest in the sense that you could be the richest person in a in a state, but if that state is a failed state, your wealth means nothing. So yeah, yeah. I don't want to be deliberately contrarian, but I do understand some of that argument around it is. St- Built yeah. into self-interest is still self-preservation. And you don't want to be the richest person in, in a country that can't function. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's true. That's not a moral argument, right? That's, a, that's a, an sure. argument that simply sure. says that the best way of protecting self-interest is to up to, to at least to a limited degree, to um, look after other people's interests as well. But that's a different kind of argument from one that says my well-being is bound up with the well-being of others. Or as I've now said a couple of times, that that my fate is uh, bound up with the fate of others. We are in this together. A society is a cooperative system. It is not a hotel. The hotel image is the is the you know, the libertarian yes. one. Whereas the, yes. the, a better understanding of a society, of a system of cooperation, which means that if I am wealthy, if it means that I have benefited quite extraordinarily from other people's cooperation. So others have yes. bought what I had to sell. That makes me utterly dependent on them. And of course, they are utterly dependent on me. So the question is, how do we, how do we, structure this mutual interdependence in a way that is that is morally justifiable and not just that gives those who are already benefiting the most uh, the chance to keep on benefiting the most yes yes so so is it fair to say that 
rules theory is is a, a an experiment in socialism yeah it, it's often heard that way but it really isn't rules is not a socialist mm. what he proposes later on in his work but it's not it's not very well worked out it's something that he calls property owning democracy so he's he's absolutely for private property so he's in that sense he's not a socialist i mean he's not yes uh, ideologically opposed to to what he calls liberal socialism but in many instances this would be kind of Path dependent, so it would depend on the on the history and the uh, the nature of a particular society, whether uh, socialism or a, or property owning democracy would work better. But his idea is that ownership in productive assets should be as widely distributed as possible. That is the way in which you ensure that every member of a society has a sense that they are sharing in the income and wealth generated or in the wealth generated in society as a whole mm, how one okay. has to to implement that in practice so you know there are lots of questions one can ask about that but you know i think the scandinavian countries germany for instance that would be examples where workers have uh have shares in the company that they work for and in that sense they are already they have a they have co-ownership of this productive asset so that's much more the model that he has in mind but certainly not any kind of socialism in a in you know in the sense of no private property state ownership of assets he's absolutely not advocating state ownership of assets yeah so i mean my two areas of interest are, are leadership and technology and rules is such an attractive theory because the only legitimate argument really by any reasonable person that I've spent time talking to about the theory is yes, but it's it's implausible. It's it's nice idea. Can't argue against it. The politics are sound. The economics are sound. The logic is incredible, but how do you administrate? And the answer is definitely not government because <laughs> government has proven time and time again that they are incapable of, of playing this role with, uh, with any sense of accountability, consistency or, or objectivity. But what is really interesting about the world that we are transitioning into is that it is a world that for the first time ever has the kind of technology uh, and I speak specifically to, to sort of decentralized distributed technologies like blockchain technology that, you know, that's made things like cryptocurrencies possible that mm -hmm. are specifically designed to disintermediate the distribution of resources, but in a way that is absolutely trustworthy and immutable and completely accountable. Yeah. I, I wonder what Rawls's view, uh, how excited he would be by the appearance of these technologies and, and whether he would imagine that for the first time ever, you would actually, assuming you could literally pause a, pause a society and restart it again, maybe we could administrate it using the types of technologies that are available to us today. I think that that is a really interesting and exciting kind of prospect. I mean, I don't think that one should be naive either, because once again, one shouldn't assume that once government, once the state bats out, you have uh, 
perfectly rational and perfectly moral actors doing doing the right thing. So, yes, sure, but, but let, let's bracket that for a moment and say, well, do we need the state in its current form to administer, you know, to regulate us in the way that it has been doing and so on? And no, there's no absolute answer for that. I mean, again, this is how things are. This is what we are used to. But there's nothing that says that it's only the state who can who can impose these kinds of um, regulations. It's only the state that that should oversee distribution. I mean, part of the point of of Rawls's entire thought experiment is to say that I mean, the, the decisions of the state can only be justified based on the consensus of the citizens who are being governed. So if there are other ways in which one can establish consensus, rather than by voting for a political party that's then going to go and do whatever they end up doing on your behalf, if there are other ways of of, uh, generating consensus and implementing decisions, there's absolutely no, no reason in principle why that shouldn't happen. Um, and I think that your point is a really interesting one. I mean, you know, where are we going to be in a hundred years time, two hundred years time from 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 now? Will we need the state in the form that we currently have it uh, in order to implement uh, these decisions? And I don't think it's obvious at all. Yeah. Well, you could argue if the state's primary responsibility is the the just and fair distribution of resources then that's an incredibly disruptable industry right now <laughs> or, or is yes. a, a business that is ripe for disruption. And that's why we look at technology in, you know, in, in, in this way is that it, it, so often the things that we consider to be extremely disruptive are really just old ideas made possible because of advances in, in, you know, in computing power. And, and that's, that's a really interesting space, I think, to watch over the next while as we, as we collectively, as, as citizens, respond to what we deem to be, I think, you know, in many instances, wide, widespread fa- you know, public sector failure. So, wow. Okay, so, Vasti, I feel like I've, I've, I've been in an hour-long mental yoga session here, and, and my brain is, is incredibly stretched. But thank you so much for being so generous with your, your experience and your wisdom and your time. We, we started our conversation today, you know, before we began recording the show, talking about what we hoped, the, you know, how we hoped people might recalibrate some of their thinking or some of their, their behavior given this you know, absolutely unprecedented moment and experience in, in time, the sort of collective pause in society globally, we, we, have this, we have this incredible opportunity to rethink the way that we do things on a personal, on a community, and then on a, on a sort of national and even global level. What do you hope people might think or do differently coming out of, of this experience? Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a huge question. Um, How much time do you have? <laughs> yeah, I mean, another, another two hours maybe. But at a very superficial yeah. level? No, at, at a superficial level, I would say what this has made us realize is how fragile the systems, the institutions, and our, the, the, the everyday way of doing things really is. And I mean, lots of people, yes. you know, uh, Nassim Taleb and so on, have been, have been warning for quite some time about the fragility of our 
social and economic existing and, construct, yeah. systems. Yeah. Um, but the recognition of that vulnerability may be a intellectual resource that we can now draw from to ask how can we reorganize our systems in ways that that leave us less vulnerable and that uh, leaves us less fragile to these kinds of large-scale disasters and then once again as as i said from the beginning that we start with the, the question of how do we protect the most vulnerable if that is one's lodestar I think a lot of the decisions one makes uh, and would make would, that would be made also at institutional and government level uh, will be different. And I don't mean the vulnerable in a kind of a ideological sense as a kind of a flag waving thing, but genuinely actual people who are vulnerable to dying and to economic destitution the moment that there is the smallest disruption in the system that we have. Sure, lots to think about, and and thanks again for the wisdom and and the intellectual prodding. Um, Vasti, if thanks. people want to reach out to you and and potentially connect with you on some of the ideas you've shared, I imagine they could do so through the university. But do you have a, a a LinkedIn profile that they could potentially connect with you as well on? Yes, I do have a LinkedIn profile. I I don't know how updated it is, but it is there. So so okay. people can it connect. Exist. People uh, can connect there. And yes, uh, via the university. I mean, my, my email is readily available there as well. Amazing. Thank you so much again for your time and, and please do enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. It was a lovely discussion. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com Click on the podcast link and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.